On this episode of the Fear Me Out podcast, I have the pleasure of inviting Eric Ricker onto my show. Eric is a dentist by trade, but also he helps high-achieving learners with his philosophy called Win the Now, and it's designed to help people working to become the best version of themselves that they possibly can be. I really enjoy talking with Eric. He's a really smart guy and very interesting, and I really appreciate what he brings to the table. So I hope you enjoy this episode. There are two basic motivating forces, fear and love. When we're afraid, we pull back from life. When we're in love, we open up to all that life has to offer with passion, excitement, and acceptance. Coming to you from our studio in Santa Barbara, California, this is the Fear Me Out podcast. We're not your typical self-help program. Our show takes a deep dive into those psychological issues that affect us on a daily basis. We hope to shift your perspective and have you experiencing emotions differently. Now, Dr. Dana Saperstein. Welcome to the Fear Me Out podcast. Today, I have the pleasure of introducing Dr. Eric Recker. Uh, I was introduced to Dr. Record by, I guess it's your publicist, is that correct? That's correct, yes. Uh, and um, she's uh, actually referred a few people to me over the course of time, and it's been a pleasure to interview the people that she has sent my way, so I figured that it would be fun to talk to you. Eric is uh, part of a, I, I don't know if you would call it a movement or what situ- or how you want to describe it, but it's called Win the Now. And uh, Eric, I'd love for you to introduce yourself, talk a little bit about who you are, and I'll ask you a bunch of questions from there. That sound okay? Yeah, that sounds good. Great. Yeah, I I could probably talk for about three hours telling my story, but we'll try. Nobody's going to still be listening at the end of that, so uh, I'll try to give kind of the shorter story of how I got to where I am right now. So. When I was younger, I have very vivid memories of laying in my bed when I was in second, third, fourth grade, uh, when uh, the clock would be 5, 5.30 in the morning, and I would look at the clock, and my hope was that my mom would not come in and wake me up to go to school on Monday mornings, because home home was a safe place. School was not as much a safe place, so I experienced some bullying. Uh, and it wasn't, you know, there's lots of different stories of bullying. Mine would be more of what I would call an everyday bullying story, but it had a big impact on me. So sometimes on the way to school, the other kids would take my backpack. Um, I get pushed down a few times, but probably the biggest part that hurt me the most was not being included at school. Uh And so in my small town in Iowa, uh, in the early 80s, recess kickball was life. It was very, very important. And it would have been one thing to be told that I was picked last, uh, but it was an entirely other thing to not be allowed to play. And you so, they didn't include you in the game? I was not included in the game. They picked teams, and then uh, I was left waiting to be chosen, and uh, I was told that I wasn't good enough to play. Yeah. So I remember very clearly my third grade cell, I believe it was third grade standing on the side of the playground where everybody else was playing and making a pact with myself that I was going to be the best 
I could ever be at everything. So no one would ever not pick me. So that was your solution, huh? That was my solution. Yep. With, I, I did the best I had with what I had, uh, best I could with what I had at that time. And that was saying that I was just going to do the best I could. Well, as you can imagine, that has led to a life of overcompensation. So uh, I was still, there was still some bullying in middle school. I finally started a little bit to figure out who I was in high school, but that relentless drive to be the best stuck with me all the way through high school, through college, through dental school, and then into my professional career and then athletic pursuits. Nothing was ever good enough for me. Okay. So uh, started running and a 5k wasn't good enough. And then a 10k and a half marathon and a marathon wasn't good enough. So I started dabbling in triathlon and I did triathlon all the way up to the Ironman distance. And it was only a few years ago that I started to realize that what am I actually chasing here? Maybe I'm still trying to impress those bullies from the playground in third grade that moved on from me probably about 10 minutes after they didn't pick me, maybe even a minute after they didn't pick me. Right. So that got me to kind of a tipping point in my life where I realized that what I've been doing isn't working because I'm pushing and pushing and pushing and everything that I accomplish, there's always something else, always something else bigger. And it actually left me as a, uh, I would say a relentless striver. So uh, a very, a very dangerous place to be, to be quite honest. You know, generally speaking, though, that is uh, the American way, right? That 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 striving would be looked at as very admirable, and and uh, uh, you know, something that we're supposed to uh, carry on through our lives. Yeah, absolutely. And just because that's how everybody sees that it should happen, doesn't mean it's necessarily the right way to do it. I, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, did your family, your parents know that you were being bullied in school? Uh, my parents did not know that I was being bullied in school. And I I don't know if I didn't think it was serious enough to tell them or if I felt like I had to fight the battle by myself. I'm not I'm still not really sure what the answer to that is. And And I will say I have awesome parents. I really do. They did the absolute best they could with uh, what they knew. Um, and I still have a very close relationship with them, extremely thankful for them. Um, I remember when I first told my parents about my bullying journey, uh, oh, my mom was just brokenhearted about it. I uh, she, she felt so guilty. And I said, Mom, you did, you did exactly what you could do. You controlled the variables you could. You provided a loving home for me. You right. provided unconditional support for me. Uh, and home was a safe place. It would have been really scary for me if home would not have been a safe place growing up. Oh, I can imagine. So, Eric, do you think that some of the bullying happened because you are a sensitive person by nature? Yeah, I think that that certainly left me open to being bullied. Uh, I, I've always been probably more sensitive than some people, uh, a little bit maybe more emotionally mature than some people, but... Yeah, I I wanted to be friends with as many people as I could. And I guess maybe I tried a little too hard sometimes when I was trying to to be friends with people. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, to not be included just uh, 
it's, it's a painful thing. Sure. Um, you know, it's interesting that you bring this up because when I was a little kid, I was the bully. Uh, and I was really, I look back and I feel so terrible about the way that I treated other children. And part of what I came to realize is that the reason that I was a bully was because I would see the look of vulnerability in uh, sensitive children's eyes. And it reminded me of my own uh, trauma that I suffered and my own perceived weakness. So as a kid, you know, being sort of black and white in my thinking, I figured, well, if I could bully the people that reminded me of my pain, this was not conscious, obviously, but then I could make it go away. And uh, that strategy didn't work either. Um, uh, by the time I got into junior high, I realized that I was actually hurting people and I didn't really know that before. Um, and I made a vow, just like you did, but in a different way, that I would never uh, get in a physical altercation with somebody ever again. And mm. so I've never been in a fight since junior high. But in order to cope with those feelings, I had to do something with them. It sounds like you moved toward productivity in a certain way. Uh, I moved toward drugs, which was part of the Los Angeles way of life mm -hmm. uh, when I was a little kid um, during the mid-60s. And so I, you know, I, I stopped being a bully and started being a drug user. Mm. So I, you know, that vulnerability and that feeling of sensitivity is um, something that we all, I think, has to, have to come to terms with. So when you discovered that maybe striving and never, I guess, never being satisfied, is that a fair way to put it? Absolutely. What did you do in order to reverse that way of living in the world, Eric? That would mean a big change in your life. Yeah, it really was. And the moment that I actually realized it, uh, my brother-in-law had challenged me to do a bike race called the Leadville 100 in Colorado. And so it's 100 miles all above 9,500 feet. <laughs> and so it's a, it's a crazy physical challenge. And at that point in my life, if you told me that there was some kind of challenge that could be done uh, and all I'd have to do is train for it, I would sign up and ask questions later. Absolutely. So he told me that in November, I signed up shortly there uh, sign up starts in january i was on it that day signed up for the race and we headed out to colorado from iowa so it was uh i think we had about a 12 hour drive in a rental rv went out with them the next morning so we got out there on a tuesday night uh wednesday morning i uh got up with both of my brothers-in-law that came along with me and we hiked uh, Mount Princeton, which is 14,000 feet and change. So we went from Flatlander, Iowa guys right up the mountain. And I was in amazing shape getting ready for this race. So climbing the mountain was not difficult for me. And I got up there before they did and stood on top of the mountain. And I looked around and what really should have been this amazing moment of look at creation, look at this view, look at all of this was just hollow. Uh, and all I could think about was the race that was three days away. And what I realized in that moment is I didn't know why I was climbing the mountain. Mm -hmm. I really didn't know why. And so the phrase that popped into my head was, if you don't know why you're climbing the mountain, you won't find the answer at the top. Right. 
and it became so true for me. I didn't know why I was doing all the Ironman races. I didn't particularly love the training. I liked feeling in good shape. I didn't like how it owned my life, how it took 20 to 24 hours a week of training in addition to all the other things in life. And sure. so I, I knew at that moment that I was going to be able to finish the Leadville race. I knew it. I didn't have a bit of doubt, but I also knew that it wasn't going to mean anything. And so I did the race. And as it turned out, the only part of it that really meant anything to me was the fact that my uh, son, who was, I believe he was 11 at the age at, at that time, he ran across the finish line with me. So okay. that part was special. But all the rest of the sacrifice just was not was not worth it. So that's the last long endurance event that I've done. And so now I've spent more time trying to figure out what my why is in life, figuring out what my purpose is. Why am I climbing the mountain? Why am I wanting to do things? And in the midst of all of that, I have this huge story to tell. And I think there are a lot of people out there, at least from the conversations that I've had, there's a lot of people out there who have had similar journeys that are just chasing, striving. And at some point you bump up against an identity crisis and can't quite understand why you're doing what you're doing. And I love to come alongside people and help them figure out what's next. So um, are you willing to tell us you know what came to you and and what that story is yeah absolutely so uh as you can imagine someone who's a relentless striver that eventually leads to burnout right it can certainly yeah so what i found out the the evil equation of burnout for me was being overcommitted and not taking good care of myself uh -huh. so Obviously, the overcommitment part is is very apparent from the story that I told. The, the first season of burnout that I had, I had just uh, bought the practice from my dental practice from my dad. I had uh, started construction on a new building and uh, my dad was very supportive, but he was hands off. He said, hey, this is your practice, your business. You do you do your thing. I was training for an Ironman triathlon. I was on two different boards and I was coaching both of my kids in soccer. So when you do those many, that many things all at one time, it's hard to do any of them really, really well. So I was, I was really burnt out. And so at, fortunately I was able to work through that. I, I still don't know how I, I really weathered that storm, but then burnout came knocking again around the time of COVID uh -huh. and, uh, COVID was going to be, uh, when COVID hit, it was right during spring break. And during that, that spring break week, my family and I were supposed to be in Spain. My son was a senior in high school and he was going to go off to college. And so I had a lot of pressure on that vacation that we had to have some kind of special family connection before he graduated and the summer flew by and then he was off to college. Well, obviously, we were told we couldn't go to Spain, and I'm super thankful that we didn't because Spain kind of became the epicenter of the early part of the COVID uh, right. pandemic. But we were supposed to go to uh, see a bullfight. We were going to go to Morocco, to Tangier, to see where some of the James Bond filming was done. Um, we had all these wonderful things that were planned. And so then all of a sudden, I went from that 
to still being off work, but having discretionary time, which is something that I really had never had. And so in that discretionary time, I committed to when my office was closed, I, I committed to spending 30 minutes of quiet a day, which was totally counter anything that I've ever done. I always lived my life at such a fast pace and never really had time for quiet. So I committed to 30 minutes of quiet because I go hard in everything I did. I didn't start at five minutes. I just went right to 30. <laughs> so uh, I think the first day I looked at my watch about 45 seconds into that 30 minutes and said, boy, I got to be getting close. <laughs> After 45 seconds. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it was a journey to the point where I could get to 30 minutes. And I knew that my brain needed some white space. It needed some time to idle. It is something that I had not been, been giving myself over the years. And in that time, I was able to be quiet, let my thoughts run, try to recenter my mind when it would drift. And during that time, I, can't, uh, I was hit with the win the now concept. Uh -huh. And largely what I had found in my life is that I was either stuck in the past, thinking about the bullying or all the things that had happened to me, or I was worried about the future, worried about the next race. I was worried about what was going to happen with my practice, worried about COVID, worried about financial stuff, worried about all of all of the things. And what really hit me is that when I'm in either of those places, and I think a lot of us experience this, we miss out on the one thing that's guaranteed. And that's right now. So what we have right in front of us is really the one thing that is guaranteed. And so what when the now means is it talks about how can we find a win in the current moment that we're in? So Dana, for you and I right now, the current moment that we're in is recording this podcast. Right. And I hope that a win in this time looks like us having a great conversation, maybe some insights being shared. We encourage each other for the journey. Uh, after this, I'll be having uh, dinner with my wife and a win in that time looks like some good conversation, uh, a good nutritious meal, uh, encouragement for each other for moving forward. So as we go about our day and the different things that we have that that we're going to be doing, what are the things that will uh, help us to get wins in those moments? And, and do you experience a sense of gratitude when you recognize that uh, that you've achieved that win? Yeah, absolutely. I think whether we're sports fans or not, I think everybody loves a win, right? <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. So, and then when you get a win and in my dental practice, I look at a win, I, my day is totally different. So I'm very structured in my day. I'm scheduled on the 15 minutes every day. It's just how many increments of 15 minutes do I have? Right. So in each patient interaction, whether it be a patient that I'm doing treatment on or whether it be a patient that I'm doing an exam for my hygienist, what does a win look like in, that, in those moments? A win looks like a good conversation. Uh, a win looks like noticing somebody with how isolated we've been for a few years. You know, people have not been around people 
but then they come in and we get a chance to notice them. We get a chance to ask them how they're really doing. We get a chance to share life with them. So some of those things create a win. Now, knowing that I'm in a healthcare profession and things don't always go great, um, somebody might be really fearful or uh, something might uh, happen that we aren't able to complete a procedure. Uh, and, and that might feel like a loss. And it's tempting to allow that to dictate how the rest of your day looks. Right. But what when the now says is there's another now right in front of us. So we process what happened, uh, take some notes of it if we need to, to address it later. But then we move forward because there's another chance for a win right around the corner. So it, it sounds like in a certain way that you're always looking for the opportunity in a very enthusiastic kind of positive way. That's what I'm trying to do. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, that, I mean, it sounds different than just trying to uh, better yourself or better or do something better. Or, you know, uh, if the 10K didn't work, the 20K is going to be better. This is it sounds like a, like you're still achieving and striving, but in, for a very different reason. Yeah. And and one of the things that I really like is I, I, I love the opportunity to be able to encourage other people because the science on encouragement is so powerful. So Dana, if I send you an encouraging text, uh, then you get a benefit from being encouraged. But the cool thing is, is that I also get a benefit from sending that to you. I get uplifted as well. And then in the process, you might just send something encouraging back to me. And so then we get this double benefit and we both benefit from it. So I don't send someone else an encouraging text so that I get benefit from it, but that is a side effect. So it's really neat when you start looking at life that way, it's it, instead of how can I better my life, it's how can I make a bigger impact and how can I bless other people? Well, I think that, that again, it's if unless you're a narcissist, it always feels really good to give. And um, I think it's harder for people to receive than it is to give. Uh, and, and again, unless you're a narcissist, all you do is receive. But that's the exception to the rule. Yep, <laughs> uh, yep. So really what you're talking about is how good it feels to be of service and to give to other people. Definitely. In a way, you're giving to yourself at the same time because you're expressing your version of love or however you want to look at it. Um, and and to me, there's a huge shortage of love in the world and a huge shortage of, of uh, feeling that people matter. I see a lot of people, and I'm not just talking about professionally, but in the world that are really lonely and feel disconnected and are dying for contact. Mm. So part of what you're talking about is going out of your way to make as much contact as you can with the people that matter to you. That's and exactly right. That it, to me, that is an incredibly, it's like feeding somebody's soul in a way. And that feels yeah. good. Because yeah. you, you feed your own soul at the same time you're feeding somebody else's. You're exactly right. I had, uh, I think this kind of goes along with that. I had a, a pretty major crisis of purpose in my, uh, in my dental practice years ago. I had gone on a couple mission trips to uh, Haiti and to Guatemala and I'd been able to do a bunch of dental work for people who really had no other way to have dental work done and uh, help with some infections and broken teeth and stuff like that. And really felt like I was able to make a difference. Well, then I came back home 
And I was back into my practice where, um, you know, I'm able to make a comfortable living and uh, lead my team and do all of that. But I felt like I could make more of a difference if I went and did mission dentistry. Mm-hmm. So, you know, step away from the practice, downsize our house, sell all our stuff, and then go and, uh, you know, do this dentistry for other people. Uh, I felt so bad for my poor wife because uh, when one when one spouse goes on a mission trip, the other spouse should almost have a course that says they're going to be weird when they come back and they're going <laughs> to want to do all this stuff. So just give them a little time. Um, so- so you didn't actually switch your life up to that degree? I did not. No, I actually um, uh, I met with uh, my pastor and I said, hey, I don't feel like I'm making any difference here. I really don't. I don't feel like I'm I feel like I can make so much more difference. I can give so much more when I if I would go to these other countries and do this. And he just paused a little bit. And he said, uh, how many conversations are you able to have in a day? I said, well, I mean, I, I might see eight to 10 patients for treatment and I might see 15 patients for my hygienist. And then I might see most of my team during the day. So, you know, 30 to 40, maybe conversations in a day. And he said, I could never hope to have that many conversations in a day said, these are your people, bless your people. So I never looked back from that. I've gone on a couple mission trips since then, and I felt very fulfilled in doing that. But man, I uh, automatically have that many people that I get to have conversations with each day and encourage them and strengthen them. And so that's, that's honestly the reason that I'm still in dentistry. The technical aspects of it are fine. I feel like I'm pretty good at them after over 20 years. But really, if I'm not building relationships with people and encouraging people, I don't think I'd be there anymore. Well, so again, your pastor reminded you that having connection is a way of expressing love. And um, uh, and it sounds like he, 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 that is not location specific, right? You don't have to go to Haiti to express love, even though you do. And, you know, that may be fulfilling, but I think what he reminded you of is that uh, that that kind of connection is possible anywhere. It doesn't have to happen by changing them by everything in your life and <laughs> and driving your wife crazy at the same time. Oh, man, Dana, it was tough. It I was tough for her. She's been super tolerant of me with all these adventures that I've done. But, man, um, sainthood for that, for putting up with me through that. Well, you know, I always figure if you're smart, you marry up. If you know what I mean, I certainly married up, and nobody's ever argued with me when I say that out loud. <laughs> they all say, "Yeah, you know, you're right." <laughs> yes. So, yeah. I think a I wise, like this. A wise man marries up. <laughs> yeah, I like to say I outkicked my coverage. Yeah, there you go. So, so yeah. Everyone, everyone yeah. Um, so it sounds like uh, there is a strong spiritual component to how you live your life. Is that a fair thing to say? It's a very fair thing to say. And um, was that is that a deliberate sort of choice that you make in terms of how you're uh, living, how you're living your life? It is. It's it's actually fundamental to everything that I do. Uh, my faith is is the most important thing in my life. Uh, sometimes it's 
it's hard to put it above my family because my family means so much to me and my my friends mean so much to me but but faith is my cornerstone for sure okay. and so when i when i look at how my i live my life um i i think what is something that i can do to help leave the world a better place than when when i got here okay. so uh at things I didn't think about when I was 20 years old, but definitely things I think about when I'm in my mid forties. Um, I look at, I'm probably statistically in the second half of my life. If I'm not, I'm pretty close. Yeah. And my goal is to help people shorten the distance to the best version of themselves. And a lot of how I do that is I just love people. Uh, and I have a, a great friend that I'm on a board uh, with, and his question always is, what does love require of me in this situation or in this moment? Okay. And I think it's a really powerful question to ask if you're at the airport and your flight gets delayed and you're standing face to face with the gate agent and you're really frustrated. That's brutal, isn't it? Well... Uh, you're a better man than me if you can find love in a situation like that. <laughs> I'm not saying I nail it, but it definitely means it definitely means that you treat the person like a human, right? And you yeah. don't you don't treat them like some dirtbag that I yeah. you know I, I I saw a guy just absolutely reaming a gate agent one time, just yeah. giving them the absolute business, and I just looked at my wife and I said, man she would do anything she possibly could in her life right now to get that guy on a plane. Right. The last thing she wants is him standing there berating her. Right. Right. Yeah. Now, now I say this about love. I, I swing and miss. I absolutely do. Um, what you were talking about, about bullying um, when you were growing up, the pendulum swung the, the other way when I started to get some confidence um, I don't know if it's that I felt that I'd been bullied so much that it was time that I uh, gave back, for lack of a better term. Um, but uh, but it was easy to do. And I understand why the, the bullies bullied me, because we we just live in a culture um, where where love is not downhill sledding. Love is kind of going against the green. We look at the news, we look at the media, there's a lot of grumpiness a lot of negativity and mm -hmm. and love says that we have to find a way to push through that to try to make the world a better place sure understand that you do live in a small town in iowa correct yes um how small of a town are we talking about here about ten thousand people uh that's very small um uh, <laughs> i have never been to iowa i've i have been in california since i was about five and so I think basically because I've been educated in this state that um, I've been uh, sort of brainwashed into believing California is the only place in the country that exists because it's a very egocentric state. Um, mm. I'm always curious when I meet someone that lives uh, in such a different part of the country that I do that. What is what's it like to live in a really small town in Iowa? You know, there's there's pluses and minuses. So um Pluses are, you know, a lot of people that live yeah. in the town. Right. So you're able to really get some good, solid relationships. You run into people often. Um, we go to the same 
restaurant every Wednesday night. We have great friends that uh, that run it. Many of the servers we've um, gotten to be in really good relationship with. So I think the community aspect of it, being in close community with a lot of people uh, is a huge advantage. Definitely a disadvantage uh, is it's hard to have any anonymity. Anonymity. Right. Um, right. It's harder to just go to the grocery store and okay. just say, you know what? I just want to run and get in, run in and get something and get the heck out of Dodge without being noticed. Yeah, um, I imagine there's probably 20 people that want to talk to you uh, in line. Especially and being, yeah, especially being a dentist, I get uh, I get the fish hook every once in a while. Sure, absolutely. Wanna, yeah, can you take a look at this real quick? I, I just got this yeah. thing that's hurting and uh, <laughs> it's been that way for quite a while, but you, you don't want to just tell me what it is? Right. You know, that's very funny because my life is exactly the opposite of being a psychologist. Uh, my wife jokes around that I can clear out a room like nobody's business, uh, that uh, people can't get away from me fast enough most of the time when they find out what I, what I do for a living. So uh, I, I like have this, uh, I have a, a built-in uh, repellent that, yeah. that sends most people away uh, as quickly as they can get away from me because uh, it makes people really nervous that I might be able to divine their secrets and and find out the things that they're ashamed of. So <laughs> my wife often says, how long do you think it's going to take to empty out this room? And, uh, you know, oh. we'll make a group about it. But it, I'm really good at it, actually. <laughs> oh, it's pretty oh funny. that's funny. Yeah. So uh, it, it does sound, though, like uh, there's a really strong spiritual sort of connection in your life that really uh, moves you forward. And it sounds like it's a huge part of the, when the now philosophy is that fair to say it is uh what what i love about um the when the now philosophy is it plays well in the corporate space and we can have a great conversation about it if faith is not involved um and we can have a great conversation if people want to make it completely faith-based okay. and um my my goal is to meet people right where they're at uh, and and there doesn't have to be a faith background. There can be a faith background. Wherever people are, I want to meet them right where they are and help them figure out those small but significant steps that they can take to move their life forward so that they don't stay stuck. So when you're engaging in this part of your profession, how do people find you? Because you are a really small place. Uh, I'm assuming that a lot of the work you do is outside of the community that you live in. Is that fair to say? It's very fair to say. Yeah. So how do people yeah. find how do, how do they find you, Eric? Yeah. A lot of it is through social media. Okay. Uh, so uh, social media, yeah, obviously pros and cons, but it, yeah. it is a way to create awareness. Um, one of the tough things is I, I think some of the people in my town um, think, Oh, this is a phase. He'll, you know, he's a dentist. He's that. That's what he does because you know, yeah. uh, identity is such a big thing, and other people's perceptions of your identity is such a big thing. So, oh, he's a dentist, but you know, he's goofing around with this other stuff. You know, he posts on social media and he does a few talks here and there, and that's just a phase that's kind of going to go away. So growing it locally is a little bit more of a challenge. Um, so it's it's a matter of um, I, I'm not a huge fan of networking. 
Um, especially walking into a room and trying to make phony connections with a bunch of strangers. Yeah. I'm not a huge fan of that, but I do have to figure out how to build good relationships with people um, and try to make some connections that can help, help grow the brand. So um, some of it has been through uh, as far as getting speaking and coaching uh, relationships. Some of that has been through uh, sales of my book and people passing that around. Um, okay. so, some of it has been through um, speaking locally and then getting some up. Somebody knows somebody who needs a speaker and then it uh, it expands a little farther than that. So um, it, it's been interesting how it's going. And the great thing for me is this doesn't have to go really fast. It doesn't have to grow really fast. I, I still am a chairside dentist three days a week. Okay. And so the other days are the days that I work on this. So I'm, I'm trusting uh, in, in my faith. I'm uh, trusting the story of how things are supposed to progress. And I'm doing my best to try to add value to people's life. So things as, as things progress through that, um, some momentum is being built and, and it feels good. Good. So uh, before I forget, please tell my listeners the name of your book and where they can find it. Yeah. So uh, my book is called The False Sense of Urgency and How to Win the Now. Okay. So uh, what is the false sense of urgency? Um, So it's kind of what I felt like when COVID hit. The reason that I say that is as soon as our offices were closed down, it seemed like the next day the webinars started hitting. So webinars about infection control, what it was going to look like when our offices opened up back up. Because dentistry, uh, maybe not public enemy number one, but we were pretty high up there because we generated aerosols in our procedures and aerosols carried COVID. So our offices were to the general public and to most people were really scary places. So the webinars on what is our new air filtration systems going to look like, uh, chairside vacuums for to scavenge any of the aerosol particles. Um, how long does it have to be in between patients so our rooms can be de- uh, sanitized and and all of that? And there were so many webinars. I could have watched eight hours of webinars every single day and watched nothing that was repetitive. Wow. So then the urgency was that you needed to watch everything or else you had kind of a FOMO, a fear of missing out. Right. So the the urgency was, I got to watch all this. I got to watch it. I got to take it in. I got to do all of that. But the reality is, is the infection control stuff that we learned on day one of COVID looked very little like the stuff that we learned right before we went back to our practices. Uh So this false sense of urgency that I got to do this. I got to constantly be in motion. I have to constantly be productive um, is something that terrorizes a lot of us and makes us feel like our lives have to be a series of productive things over and over and over. And so the concern about that takes us away from the present moment. Mm -hmm. So the when the now is the antidote to the false sense of urgency. You know, you bring up a really good point. I mean, the name of my podcast is called Fear Me Out, which obviously is a play on words. But um, one of the reasons why 
that title seems so important to me is because fear is such a huge part of our reality and that we look at fear as being the enemy and we have to defeat it or somehow destroy it. And yet what I've noticed is that really it's your relationship to fear that determines the outcome. Hmm. And that fear is just a natural part of our lives. And uh, if you get in your car and you drive through an intersection without fear, you're not going to make it through the intersection because there's nothing inherently uh, uh, important about red lights, except we've been made to feel afraid of them. So, you know, there's a good amount of fear that keeps us alive. But when it over when it when it's used as a weapon, which I think it is by the media and by the world that we live in. And most businesses are run by fear. Uh, most relationships are based in fear. Um, your relationship with yourself if you're kind of willing to accept my uh, opinion about it, was based in fear that you're not good enough being who you are. So you have to create a false version of yourself in order to be accepted and to feel good enough. And that drove you most of your life. And that was like, go, you know, most of us go to the gas station, fill up our, fill up our bodies with fear as a way of living our lives. And uh, I feel really sad about that because um, we take fear and we turn it into aggression. That's the main way that people handle fear. And they either aggress against themselves by being very self-critical or other people or both. And I don't think that most people realize how quick that transformation from vulnerability to aggression takes place. Because um, part of what you realize was that, you know, I'm not really being very kind to myself by driving myself crazy all the time. Right? Yeah. But that's a child's magical thinking that comes into the picture about how to solve a problem. And that's usually where we come up with our solutions is when we're when we're children and are still locked in black and white thinking because you can't think in three dimensions so you go through puberty, and um, you, you certainly weren't going through puberty in third grade I don't think, um, so naturally the solution you came up with well if they don't like me because of this then I just got to do that and then everything will be okay, um, and then we carry those solutions into our adulthood and they become very destructive yeah because they're based on magical thinking rather than on who we are as people so it really sounds like part of what came to you and again please correct me if i'm off base here but during your quiet moments was that you were able to hear that spiritual voice inside of you kind of helping you recognize that you weren't being kind in the way that you were dealing with your fear and that if you could just slow down a little bit and and focus on the, your ability to give love and to, uh, you know, let people feel what it is that you actually bring to the table, which is not accomplishment, but love, that that just changed everything in your life. Am I being sort of fair in describing it this way? Very fair. Yeah, I would I would agree with that assessment for sure. Because that's what makes you inspirational in this way is that that you took your relationship with fear and turned it into pretty much of a relationship based on love. And to me, that's very sweet and I admire it a great deal. And the more we talk, the more I'm sitting here thinking, man, this guy's got it going on. He's in his mid forties and he's already figured this out. <laughs> well, I'm enough to be your dad. And it took me a long time to figure this stuff out. <laughs> well, I, I appreciate you saying that. And I, I love that perspective that you talk about our relationship to fear. Uh, if I can tell a story from when I, one of the, one of my mission trips to, to Haiti, I've been there several times, uh -huh. but I was able to go for a leadership conference. And so 
able to go help lead a leadership conference. So I was one of the speakers there. And it was interesting speaking uh, to a group of Haitian people with a translator. It's a little hard to get momentum with having to work through a translator. Yeah. But one of the things that I wanted the Haitian people to work through that were there uh, is voodoo is huge in Haiti. And yeah. voodoo is all fear. It is just 100% fear. So they had an extremely toxic relationship with fear, just tore them apart. And so what we had them do is everybody got a note card and a pencil and they wrote down their fears on that note card. And they wrote them all down uh, as much as they could fit on that note card. And then we started a small fire outside of where we were uh, having our meeting. And a song. there was a team there that played a song, I'm No Longer a Slave to Fear. So everybody yeah. took their pieces of paper and threw it into the fire. And it was so symbolic of that attempt to step away from fear being in control of their lives. Right. And it was it was just such an amazing moment to see people who you could almost see chains breaking off some of the people as they really some people kind of violently threw their paper into the fire and other people just right. kind of tossed it to the side. And it's it's amazing the power that fear can have over us. That's for sure. And, 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 and the idea that you can get rid of fear is not really very respectful because it does keep you alive. But the idea that you can meet it with, I guess, with love, because those are the options, right? You're, you're going to live in fear or you're going to live in some kind of faith. Yep. Um, it just gives you the ability to have courage, I think. And, yes. to, and, and to be married to your convictions, which makes it a little bit easier to stand up in the face of fear and still move yourself forward in, in a way that... Uh, helps you get to where you want to go. So uh, th that exercise you're talking about sounds really powerful and really wonderful. Um, I, I am curious, though. I was brought up in a, a Jewish tradition, which I rejected uh, intensely because uh, my idea of a good time was baseball and surfing, not going into a religious institution. <laughs> so uh, if you ask me what my religion was when I was, uh, you know, in my probably 20s or even before then, I would have said to you, I'm an antagonist. I'm not an atheist or agnostic. I'm antagonistic because um, I mistakenly believe that the only way that you could have a relationship with God was through religion. So I'm just kind of curious about whether um, your faith is, is completely religiously based or partly or not so much. Yeah. Um... So, yeah, and, and there were some bumps in the road on my faith journey, for sure. Um, I, uh, I was, I didn't, I didn't get into drugs, but I definitely had an unhealthy relationship uh, with alcohol early on in my, in my college years. It was just, I, I kept it all separate. I was either uh, studying hard because I knew to get into dental school, I was going to have to, again, be the absolute best that I could be. Right. But man, Thursday night came and it was on and we were getting <laughs> after it. Oh, man. In yeah. Iowa, Iowa City, it was it, Thursday nights were crazy. But then I woke up Friday morning, whatever position, whatever condition I was in again, and I had to get right back on it and get right back to studying. 
um, because I knew I knew what the end game was. Um, but I I think you know you talked about and it was after that that uh, my wife and I started being when I was in dental school we started being youth group leaders for uh, for a local church of of middle schoolers. Yeah. And I hadn't really made my faith my own at that point. And I remember these middle schoolers talking about their faith and being like, what is wrong with me? Like, I've gone through this much life. These kids have it figured out and they're in junior high. And yeah. man, I'm in dental school. I don't have this figured out. Right. So for me, I think there is such a... Uh, I don't know what the what the right word is, but there's a lot of misconceptions about um, religion um, versus a relationship. So right. for me, I think that organized organized religion uh, has done a lot uh, a lot to divide us as people. Um, it really has. You you talk to people that they'll have uh, they'll have a story about how the church wronged them or about how they felt judged or how they don't want anything to do with it because they didn't see any love in it whatsoever. Right. Um, I see my faith as each day trying to be a little bit more like Jesus. Okay. That's that's what I see. So I'm I would I would more classify myself as a disciple of Jesus than I would as a Christian. Um, because I think a lot of times um, my faith is is in Christ. It is I am a Christian, but I think that word gets such a connotation that I more want to be. Um, they said they will uh, um, they will know we are Christians by our love. And I think when we judge people and when we don't show love towards people, then then we're operating out of religion and rules instead of operating out of love. Okay. To your now, point, is, that makes sense. Is you, sure? Is this part of the women now philosophy, or is or is this something that brought the women now philosophy to fruition? You know, this would be more just my uh, my personal way of how I feel about life. Yeah. Um, okay. Yep. Okay. Yep. And I I think that you know when you live present, uh, I, I like talk about winning the now for uh, you win for yourself, but you also win for others. Um, and, and when you're able to like encouragement, like we were talking about encouragement earlier, when you encourage someone else, that, that is the ultimate refueling strategy. So we, we get drained with everything that we do during the day. We got to find ways to refill each, ourselves. So when we can bless somebody else and maybe they shoot an encouragement back to us, that refills us and that strengthens us. So when we win the now, really, if we're, if we're doing it well, we're winning not only for ourselves, but we're winning for other people as well. And that's what I love about it. So if a company hires you to do a present, would they be hiring you to do a, a presentation for the whole company? Or is it a training that takes place over a number of days? Or how does it work like on a practical level? Yeah. So I have a couple different options. I can certainly do a one hour keynote where I talk about uh, climbing Mount Kilimanjaro and some of the lessons that I learned from that and how win the now uh, ties into that. Okay. Uh, but one of my favorite things to do is to teach a workshop for a group of about 10 to 15 people. And what we do in that workshop is we talk about how life drains us. And we talk about the different things that, that lead to burnout, the different things that lead to us being empty. And we get to a point where we honestly assess where we're at 
And then we talk about strategies to build ourselves back up and how can we refuel? How can we get more back in the tank? Um, and I found for this to be incredibly effective with leaders uh, because if leaders can figure out how to do this, then they can teach this to their people and it yeah. has a ripple effect. Yeah, that's a good way to look at it for sure. Um, and uh, how many companies do you work with sort of over the course of a, of a year's time? Oh, you know, I, I would say probably uh, half a dozen companies okay. that I work with. I'm, I'm currently going to be doing a, a workshop for a group of, and usually I like to do it in smaller numbers, but I am, uh, you know, the, the workshop plays really well for a half day. We do about three to three and a half hours worth of, of work in that. Um, the next one that I'm going to do coming up in a few weeks uh, is for about 140 people. And we're just going to tailor it to a, a bigger group size. Um, and we're going to teach some of those same strategies. And hopefully that these leaders can go back to their teams um, and and help to strengthen their teams as well. So I'm curious, Eric, when you, when you say we, do you have people that work for you, that help you in your with your program? Uh, I don't. I, I, you, when I said we, I just meant I work with the companies. We work together. We work together. Okay. I yep. wasn't sure because it sounded like um, with a big group like that, that you would need more than just you to uh, be a facilitator. But uh, I guess you can handle that if you break them into smaller groups or somehow. Um, uh, and, and usually uh, sometimes with companies, that's the foot in the door. That's how I get in the door is by working yeah. with a bigger group. And sure. then the hope is then that we get into some smaller groups and are able to dive even deeper into the message. Okay. So what am I forgetting to ask you about? Is there anything that you feel like I haven't uh, sort of asked you about in terms of the work you're doing and the inspiration you're providing? I would say the only other thing that, that I really, really like to do is I like to work with people who uh, work with high achievers who are stuck. So uh, a lot of people who have been climbing that mountain, like I was, who have worked their tail off to get to where they are, but they're not really sure if where they are, where they are is the right place to be. They're not really sure what the next steps are. Do I keep climbing? Uh, is, this, is this what the rest of my life is supposed to look like? And we take a pause and we go through a couple different uh, exercises, strategies that uh, help people to figure out, am I on the right road? Does the road look a little bit different? But how can we figure out a plan so that people have hope and they believe that good days are ahead going forward? Okay. Well, I'm glad you brought that up because um, I think a lot of us probably have the mistaken identity that people that are super successful don't struggle. Right? And that they just live a charmed life. Yep. And I know that that's not true. Uh, I live in a very distorted community in terms of wealth. And uh, I, I will say that I, I meet people that have, I joke around and say more money than God. And I meet people that in Santa Barbara terms barely get by, which means they make a couple hundred thousand dollars a year, um, which is crazy because it's so expensive to live here. But what I find more than anything is that people's relationships with other people determines their satisfaction in life more than anything. Right. If you're not in relationships that matter, um, it doesn't matter how much money or success or anything that you have. Uh, and I see, again, people that, that sometimes drive up to my house with more with a car that's worth more than my house, which is pretty stunning. <laughs> but 
Um, that seems to be universal. Have you found that sort of true in the work you do with people? Yeah, we're we're chasing this thing that we're never going to find. We're climbing this mountain and, and there's going to be another mountain. There was even a documentary on Netflix about the guy who climbed all 14 peaks that were above 8,000 meters. Right. Um, and he did it in, in seven months. Uh, and it was crazy. And he got done and they said, what's next? What's he next? said, and he said, bigger. I said, what, what are you going to go to the moon? I <laughs> what's bigger. <laughs> we're going to bump up against that ceiling of what's, what's enough. And, and how do you do that by yourself? I, I agree with you a hundred percent. I think if we don't have at least one 2 a.m. friend in our lives that we could call when our world falls apart at 2 a.m. And if we don't have uh, a mentor, someone who's helping us to either mentor or a coach, um, sure. a psychologist, a therapist, someone who's helping us to become, uh, to work on self-awareness and become a better version of ourselves, we're in trouble. Do people consider seeing therapists in the community that you live in? They, uh, it's, it's tough. Uh, I think there's probably a fair number of people who see a therapist outside of our town and oh, no one else knows about it. Oh, okay. okay. Um, I remember when our kids were younger, uh, we had, my oldest son had some, um, ADHD stuff that he struggled with. And we were trying to decide whether we should put him on um, some medication or what we should do. Right. And we, uh, we reached out to a therapist and said, Hey, we don't know what we're doing here. I we just don't feel like medication is right for him. But we're not quite sure what to do with him. Um, and so actually, both of my kids have have seen a therapist when they were when they were growing up. And uh, my wife and I both have as well. And we, I remember when we dropped Blake off um, or when we were waiting out in the waiting room for him while he was in with his appointment with the therapist, we were both, we felt like failures as parents. Wow. That okay. first appointment, we thought, what did we do wrong to get here? And wow. then when the therapist came out, who has now become a great friend of ours, she said, I just want to congratulate you guys because you took an amazing step that shows how much you love your son and you right. want him to be the best version of himself. And right. boy, I, I just, I, I think everybody, whether it's a therapist, like I said, whoever you talk to, you got to have somebody that you can talk to. Right. Yeah. Well, now you're preaching to the choir here. <laughs> I mean, I can't argue with that statement at all. Yeah. Because I actually think that, uh, well, in the community I live in, if you're not in therapy, there's something wrong with you. But I know that that's different than most other places. Uh, yeah. Uh, yep. You know, that people live. So um, we're just slowly running out of time here. I'm just wondering if there's anything else that you'd like to say to the people that listen to this podcast that, uh, that you consider to be important. You've said a yeah. lot of really good stuff. Yeah, I, I guess I would say it, it's tempting sometimes to believe that that we're pretty far gone, that we just have to try to survive in life. And I, I just want to remind people that you're never too far gone. You may be one small but significant step away from a major breakthrough in your life. Um, you may just need somebody else to help you look at your life. Um, 
I like to talk about trying to get 1% better each day. Uh, in uh, maybe you choose one thing in your life and you try to get 1% better in that. How can I get 1% better with relationships? Who can I reach out to maybe to get a coffee or to uh, have a phone call with? Uh, how can I get 1% better with my health? What is one healthy habit that I can add today? Um, and when we start doing those things, if we do 1% each day and we continue to compound that, we'll be 37 times better by the end of the year. Even if we miss a few days, but, but getting up in the morning and instead of feeling despair, think what is one thing that I can do today to move closer to a better version of myself. Okay. Very wisely. And uh, I like what you said. It's, it's very cool. Um, I really want to thank you for coming on my podcast. It's been a pleasure to, um, to talk with you. I really admire what you're doing. And uh, um, again, before we, uh, before we end the podcast, I want to know how people can reach you if they need to get a hold of you or they'd like to get a hold of you. Yeah. So uh, the easiest place, kind of a one-stop shop, is my uh, website, www.ericrecker.com, ericrecker.com. There's links to uh, hire me as a speaker uh, to have a conversation about coaching, links to uh, purchase my book. Uh, there's a link to my blog and all my social media platforms on there and a contact form for me. So pretty easy to navigate. And that's, uh, that's the easiest place to go. Very good. It's been an absolute pleasure. We appreciate our listeners and are interested in your comments and suggestions. Feel free to email us at fearmeoutpodcast at gmail.com. If you're interested in becoming a sponsor for this podcast, please email us at fearmeoutpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. See you next time.